Welcome to the Let's Talk Government podcast, a podcast that is provided for you by the Department of Government at Minnesota State University, Mankato, located in Minnesota in the United States. I am your host, Dr. Pat Nelson, the chairperson of the Government Department. I want to thank you for joining us as we explore different topics about government. Some may be surprising to you and some may not, so please enjoy. Welcome to episode 14 of the Let's Talk Government podcast. This one is about outlaw citizenship post-reality. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Amelia Pridemore from the Minnesota State University Mankato Political Science Department. You may recognize her from earlier podcasts and especially our conversation on protest, riots, and outlaw citizenship, which is episode two. So we're going to build upon that. Thank you for joining me today, Dr. Pridemore. So let's start talking about your reaction to the Capitol riot. I know you do outlaw citizenship research. I know you were watching it. So what was your reaction? What, what happened? What do you think? So overall, uh, my reaction is this. Was I horrified? Absolutely. Was I shocked? No, not at all. I hate to say that, but no, not at all. So just to revisit what outlaw citizenship is. Um, so outlaw citizenship is non-traditional citizen participation, such as protests, online organizing. And these are done by people who do not believe that they will be heard otherwise. They do this in uh, it, as opposed to traditional means of participation, like say voting or speaking at a government meeting. And one of the intents of outlaw citizenship is to work not with, but against government and to disrupt policies that the participants believe are unjust. And these can be for, as far as, you know, how, why they feel that they're not being heard. These can be for reasons both real and perceived alike. Um, and of course, when it comes to whether or not something is believed to be unjust, of course, that that's a, a relative too. But one of the key things with outlaw citizenship is that you should have seen it coming. That's my mantra. You should have seen it coming because a part of outlaw citizenship is that it is a buildup. It starts with just some grievances that nobody's really acted on. And then people get a little bit more upset and it builds and it builds and it builds. And finally, usually one major event, such as a police shooting, for example, is the straw that breaks the camel's back. And that's when your outlaw citizenship group acts. As I tell this, uh, as I as I explain to students when I'm teaching outlaw citizenship, I, I always say nobody's sitting at home minding their own business, watching Netflix, and to decide to jump off the couch and set fires in the street. No, this is, this is a buildup over time. But one thing that really struck me about the Capitol riot in terms of outlaw citizenship's buildup, yes, there was a buildup, as we've seen with other outlaw citizenship events. The thing was, is much, if not most, of everything that was the outlaw citizenship buildup with the Capitol riot was not rooted in reality. When you're talking about um, conspiracies about 
the election being fraudulent when it was not. Uh, when you're talking about people being aggrieved because there's a secret cabal of Satan worshiping child traffickers working in a pizza shop, that's Yes, that's a grievance that leads to these events, but it is absolutely not reality. So I'd like to come back to this concept of reality in just a second here. So um, I wanted to build upon your reaction and talk about my reaction to the, Mm. the reaction to the Capitol riots. I was surprised that it went as far as it did, because if you look at the crowd that actually stormed the Capitol, if you think about what mainstream America looks like, that was it, right? We have mostly people that are white, both male and female, that are, you know, not struggling. They're not deeply into poverty, but they're also not the wealthiest. So they're right in that lower to middle class. Um, they're, they're the ones that we see the Trump signs out in their front yards. They have the thin blue line flags. We found that 15, 10 to 15% of them have military experience. We see that there were current and former law enforcement officers as part of the crowd. So I was actually very surprised that they seem to cross that invisible line between civility to incivility, right? To acting out your grievances, doing your First Amendment rights of speech, your right to public assembly, your right to having grievances. And then they cross that line into, oh, it's no longer talking about your grievances, but now we're attacking people. We're physically attacking structures and we're physically attacking people. And that kind of takes me into a couple of definitions I just want to provide. And then we're going to go back to reality. So (laughs) I study terrorism and political violence. And many people have heard the term, oh, this was a domestic terrorist event. And they are going to use statutes based on terrorism to charge a lot of these people. But there is a line between what is terrorism and what is political violence. And one of the bright things about that line is terrorism. um, The targets of terrorism are people that are not in government. They're considered non-combatants or civilians. So, for example, when you hear about a suicide bomber walking into a market and blowing themselves up, they're a terrorist because they are attacking people outside the government to try to get an ideological change. This is political violence because the people that stormed the Capitol were attacking a government institution or representatives of the government, and they were trying to get an ideological logical change done. So it's, it's a small line, but it's an important line. Because even though nobody ever gets elected to Congress with the assumption that they might be attacked in their office and physically harmed, you are still an entity of the government, just like the police are the entity of a government, a representative. So this is political violence, but you're going to hear the term domestic terrorism. But let's go to reality. So we look at this and, you know, you think of the term outlaw citizenship. We think of the of the Black Lives Matter, the protest after the police shootings, you know, the protest after the Flint water um, scandal, that type of thing. But here we've got our mainstream elected president leading this. What does that say about um, their interpretation of reality and their interpreted their actual grievances for this group of people? It's. You know, it, it's it's something that I've uh, racked my brain over so much, uh, it, and it's it's sort of like, but but again, you kind of you have to look at the events before Trump was elected and look at some of the supporters that l- launched him into the stratosphere, particularly during the uh, 2016 uh, primary season. 
um, look at the ones who supported Trump in the primaries versus, say, the ones who supported, say, Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio or Jeb Bush, um, a lot of the people who started launching uh, Trump were already feeling extraordinarily on the outside when it came to the political sphere as it was. So uh, NBC did this uh, huge study, uh, both quantitative and qualitative, uh, called the United States of Trump, where they looked at these early voters. And what they often found was that the ones who started out, um, one of the striking things was a lot of them had in the past, if they even engaged in politics at all, they had turned towards a, a non-traditional kind of fringe candidates before, like uh, Ross Perot in 1992, guy made the ballot, um, you know, many, many years before the Trumpism became a thing. Um, they supported candidates like Ron Paul, um, et cetera. So, so, so a lot of the groundwork was already being laid. And then we had the Great Recession. And the thing about the, uh, about the Great Recession was that you had severe economic decay. So a lot of these same Trump voters who were already kind of gravitating towards, you know, fringe candidates as it was, were in a lot of economic distress. And actually in the recovery from the Great Recession, a lot of them were in groups that wound up being worse off than they were before the Great Recession. And another thing that happened right around the uh, events of the Great Recession was the election of a black president. Um, when you are talking about a lot of groups that have underlying racist tendencies um, that maybe just haven't acted on them yet. Well, a lot of times elevating a minority to a to the ultimate position of power is one of the uh, one of the greatest threats to what they feel is a stable society. Right. Right. So, Dr. Pridemore, is there really any kind of theory or concepts in political science that would explain why powerful and rich people or powerful corporations did not just come out and say, this is wrong. There is no stealing in the election. It's all been affirmed. You need to stop this nonsense um, before the cap storming the Capitol happened. So one thing that I would refer to is Hannah Arendt's Mob and Capital. So this is uh, this is a this is a theory that seeks to explain quote unquote why normal people quote unquote would be okay with this. So essentially, what Arendt says is that two things have to be in place to hold up a tyrant and to prop up a tyrant and put him or her into power. And that is, um, that is a group called the mob and a group called the capital. The mob is kind of self-explanatory, basically a really bunch, a really angry bunch of fired up people who will be receptive to the tyrant's message. And what Arendt argues is that the mob is often one with underlying feelings of racism. Um, they will oftentimes just not act on it, 
But one thing that starts to kind of ratchet them up a little bit more is severe economic distress, um, as was the case in Germany uh, pre-World War II. And a lot of times what happens is, is a tyrant could come along at any other time when, say, economic conditions are okay and spew out things like um, Mexicans are racist and I could shoot somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue um, and things said on an excess Hollywood tape, etc. cetera. Um, somebody could come around and say that. And people have said things like that well before Trump, but under other, under other circumstances, seriously, go away. Ew, I don't want anything to do with you. But if certain conditions are right, that message will have appeal. But that condition is not enough. So that's where capital comes in. You literally have to have money to be able to get your message out, to get your, to make your mob a stronger mob and a bigger mob, right? Well, so what happened, what has to happen there is you have to have a moneyed class, according to a rent, who will say, hey, this tyrant, if he comes into power, there's money to be made. Maybe now the thing about the, the capital crowd is, is maybe they believe in what the tyrant has to say. Maybe they don't care. Or perhaps they even disagree and find it repulsive. But their desire to make money is stronger than their, I don't know if I want to touch this seriously. And they just kind of put their morals aside because they know that there's money to be made. For example, in selling t-shirts with this person's slogans on them. Um, there will be ad dollars bought if you're a media outlet that puts this guy on television or on your social media site. Um, people who are, are part of this mob will buy your stuff, will advertise, will go to your website, etc. So you have to have an angry mob who's fired up and the necessary conditions are right, you also have to have the capital crowd who sees a financial benefit to them, even if they, even if they don't agree. And that desire for profit outweighs any kind of icky feelings that they may have about this. And that's how those two conditions are the two legs of the ladder per se that make a tyrant rise so then kind of what we're seeing now after the storm in the capital is that capital is starting to diminish so you have corporations pulling back from um, co campaign contributions disassociating themselves from different parts of this you have individuals doing that as well so if you weaken that capital leg even though you might still have that mob portion, our outlaw citizens, our ones that want to change things, and you have your tyrant, which is your person of power with a loud speaker type of thing. Even if that capital goes away, you're weakening the whole structure then. That's interesting. Right, yeah. right, right. And, it, and from all indications right now, like at this moment, it seems like ca the capital crowd peeling back, whether it be campaign contributions, um, social media platforms, which made a ton of money uh, with inflammatory content driving people to the site and more eyes on a site means greater ad revenue. Um, 
you have the social media sites saying, okay, yeah, that's enough. Let's, let's close this guy's Twitter account. Let's, let's pull this Q stuff off our site, etc. cetera. Uh, even though kind of took a while for them to reach that point. Um, but- well, they were weighing, they were weighing the benefits of having it on there versus the cost. And when, when it right. no longer became profitable, then they're just like, oh, look, we're being socially responsible and taking this down, right? Right, sort of like, uh, sort of like Amazon with taking down Parler. But right. the thing about the thing that makes it um, the thing that is going to be something to watch is that so just with uh, so just as the case with say newspapers and television outlets where buyouts have become the rule and not the exception, right? Mm-hmm. Um, tech co- sometimes just one tech company will own multiple social media platforms for example right right uh like like facebook owning not only facebook but also owning instagram and and other platforms um well the thing about the internet is is okay so for example when amazon dropped parlor well you know with with it being the internet you know you just gotta find somebody else who's willing to put your stuff out there and if they drop you well it's infinite as to, uh, you know, who can eventually start hosting this material. So the thing about the, so the internet is the platform's audience will not be as strong at first when say you get taken off of Twitter and you have to go to some kind of obscure platform of some kind. Right. Um, or move from Facebook to a more obscure platform of some kind. But the thing is, is with the internet, you can still manage to find another platform. Alex Jones, mm-hmm. who was taken off of most major social media places. Well, guess what? Alex Jones is still online. Right. Parlor is back online. Right. Huh. And that's a scary thing to, to keep in mind is, uh, you know, there's, there's still going to be uh, space for these uh, for these uh, for these for these would be wannabe tyrants to be able to spread their message and for the mobs to gather um, it's just a it's just a question of will enough of the capital crowd put the brakes on it to where it just remains some kind of fringe website that your you know crazy uncle in the basement visits on the weekends and you know is is not a big thing or will enough of the capital crowd say you know what i can make some money off of this even though it's crazy right so i would imagine most people well first of all i know you're using crazy just because of a figurative term but the people that participated in the storming the capital probably would not consider themselves outlaws right they would think that they are fighting for law and order they're fighting for the stability of our country that they're trying to save us from ourselves so first of all they probably don't think themselves as outlaws and second i'm going to ask you what do you think the pandemic has done to contribute to this the isolation the lockdown well i mean just the isolation and the lockdowns alone you're you're in your chamber by yourself with nothing but your social media in front of you um and maybe maybe your spouse and children or and pets but um but 
you know, a lot of people have stayed glued to their phones and sometimes the content that they've been uh, glued to has been rather inflammatory. Also, when it comes to a crisis, there's, there's a certain draw to um, dangerous conspira uh, conspiracy theory content that you wouldn't have in a non-crisis situation. What happens is, is that a lot of times people are drawn to conspiracy theories because even if something is just, okay, I know I'm throwing the term out again. Even if something is just absolutely insane or absurd, it's not as scary as reality. Right. And when reality becomes scary, a lot of times when you offer an explanation as to what's going on, even if that explanation is absolutely insane and there's just no way it could ever happen and makes absolutely no sense, it's an explanation. And right. so a lot of times that pan, uh, so a lot of times when you have something as severe as a global pandemic, economic distress that's absolutely off the charts, um, you know, being stuck in your house all the time, um, you know, there's, there's a greater draw to material like that. Well, especially when you have a president who has a very loud and um, visible platform saying, you know, when we have this great fraud going on and when and I'm going to paraphrase a couple of quotes here, when you catch somebody in a fraud, you're allowed to go by very different rules. So then we fight like hell. And if you don't fight, fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. So if you have somebody who is worried about the political system in the country, who thinks that there probably was a great deal of fraud and is worried that they're going to be marginalized and, and are now disenfranchised, when they hear that powerful voice saying, we can break the rules. We have different rules because we have to save our country. And if you don't fight, you're not going to have your country anymore. That just ramps up that, that thought process. So interesting. Very interesting. All right. So we've, we've talked about our reactions and what we think. So let's look towards the future. What do you think, using your magic crystal ball, moving forward to the future, <laughs> what do you think is going to keep happening here? Um, one thing that I would say on the uh, political spectrum, as far as traditional participation goes, if we could even imagine that ever happening ever again, um, be very uh, vigilant and keep a very close eye on the 2022 elections, because, you know, going back to um, Obama's win in 2008 and the Great Recession. Okay, the 2010 elections, that was, that's when the Tea Party really rose to prominence. And even, and, and, you know, 20 years, literally 10 years before this happened, we had this extraordinarily heated political rhetoric and extraordinarily heated political rallies where, for instance, people were shouting things like, we've got to grab our bayonets, right? Um, you know, the, and some of these people wound up winning political office. Again, one of those other things that leads to why didn't we see this coming, right? Well, okay. A lot of times what happens is, is when we have social progress one way or another, you know, whether we go back um, to the old days or we progress a lot and we say elect our first black female vice president, right? Um, a lot of times 
those on the opposite end say, oh, no, you don't, and want, uh, want things pulled back into their direction. So looking at the example of 2010, after Obama's historic win, and after a lot of uh, social change during the Obama years happened, when we look at the 2010 rise of the Tea Party, mm-hmm. um, the 2010 rise of the Tea Party I hate to I hate to say this, but but all signs point to it. Um, that's going to be probably nothing compared to what we will see in the lead up to and during the twenty twenty two elections. Well, it's probably, interesting that you. Oh, yeah, it's interesting you bring that up because that kind of falls in line with um, the censorship of Arizona Governor Doug Ducey. I don't think I pronounced his right name right former Senator Jeff Flake and Cindy McCain in Arizona that were just censored by their Republican Party during their annual meeting for not supporting the uh, former president's narrative. So you have that foundation already being built and we're two years away from the election. So that's very interesting. Huh. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and, and already there's the promises from um, Trump himself, as well as some others to um, you know, launch primary challengers to some of these uh, Republicans in office, like Liz Cheney, for example, mm-hmm. uh, John Thune in South Dakota, um, who basically <laughs> didn't support um, uh, the the uh, the whole voter fraud, quote unquote, issue, the whole, and, you know, thought, gee, you know, maybe it's not a good idea for the president of the United States to incite a riot. Uh, I'm going to vote to impeach. Right. Um, You know, when the groundwork is already being sown, the seeds are being planted. And yeah, the Arizona example, uh, Dr. Nelson, that you've given is an excellent one. I'm not saying, and I I hate to say that, I hate to say, uh, I hate to say, you know, when it comes to the violence that we saw at the Capitol, Mm I am, I'm the type, I don't, I never want to see this happen. I don't, but honestly, just like we saw, uh, just like, you know, we should have seen it coming with the Capitol. I, I fear that, you know, 2022 is going to be like 2010 on steroids. Right, right. Well, and I see coming up just even in this next year, as we kind of go back to the outlaw citizenship idea, is we have some events here that could definitely trigger off some violence. I mean, we've got the impeachment of Trump going to trial in the Senate. We've got the um, trials in Minneapolis for the officers that were involved in the George Floyd incident. Um, So those are two big powder kegs we already see coming up in the spring that could actually take multiple groups of outlaw citizenship that have competing ideology and putting them in the same space um, and see what happens with that. And then you also have your government. I mean, what space do you protect first? And we've seen some disparity in protecting spaces and protecting people and protecting their rights that it really will be an interesting spring to watch. It will be. Yeah. And I was just reading a report actually this morning about, um, particularly in the West Coast, like around Portland, uh, the rise of violent far left groups, uh, namely anarchists. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of people like to throw around Antifa a lot, but no, it's mainly been uh, some anarchists who were uh, who were often 
clashing with some groups like the proud boys for example so there's a lot of there's a lot of distress uh, happening on the left too um, that we're going to have to watch as well especially if these two groups literally find themselves in this in the same space Right. And then we still have the pandemic. And if we start getting disparity in vaccine distribution and vaccine coverage and healthcare, I mean, that'll just explode another group. So it'll be very interesting. I'm sure we'll be talking about this again, but thank you very much. Any closing thoughts or we pretty pretty good? I, uh, the thing that I would, I would say is I hate to, I, I want to, I would, I would like to end on some sort of message of hope. Um, I think one thing that we can do to kind of maybe put the brakes on a lot of this crazy is put is mentally put the brakes on ourselves, mentally put the brakes on ourselves. And we need to, when we see something that just seems absolutely absurd as we're scrolling through our Facebook feed, don't immediately get angry and say, oh no, this is outrageous. Let me share it uh, with my 5,000 friends think about it. Maybe, is this true? Is it? And there's a lot of sites out there that are literally devoted to fact checking, like Snopes, for example, PolitiFact, um, a lot of, a lot of sites like the Washington Post with their Pinocchio ratings, right? Right. Um, Sometimes it just takes a Google search to be able to see if it's right. So sometimes we can put the brakes on a lot of these things before they happen by mentally putting on the brakes ourselves. A lot of times the answers are, uh, are questions. And when I mean the answers are questions, it's literally just asking questions. Should I do this? Is right. this true? Should I believe this? Should I act on this? Stop and ask some questions because a lot of times when you put on the brakes, you wind up not crashing your car. Well, and sometimes just scroll on by, you know, if something is working you up, just keep going. You don't have to comment on everything. Have some empathy, understand people might have a different point of view. So, well, thank you, Dr. Pridemore. I appreciate you taking time out to talk with me about this again. I, it's, I had loved having this conversation with you because we look at this from so many different points of view and I appreciate your expertise. Thank you very much. Well, I appreciate your expertise and your point of view as well. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Government. If you have suggestions for future episode topics or other areas you'd like us to cover, please visit our website at link.mnsu.edu backslash Let's Talk Gov to submit your ideas. Join us every Tuesday for a new episode and thank you for listening.